Ladies and gentlemen, please notice that exits are conveniently located at the front and rear of this auditorium. When leaving the theater, we suggest that the exit at the front of the auditorium will allow you easier access to the parking areas. Thank you. really excuse other stuff just because, well, they tried. Listen, man, I I really like this film. I think this is the last great swashbuckling film. Quite arguably the best filmmaker of our generation. And then they like it and they tell their friends and it kind of balloons from there, but when you're... Two free plugs are in the show. Let's do a video game. <laughs> it's probably true. Hey, I'm Mike Phil. And I'm Mike Butler. And you're listening to the Forgotten Cinema Podcast. Each episode, we highlight a film that, for a variety of reasons, was forgotten by audiences, whether it's because a more popular movie was released around the same time, or maybe the movie didn't catch on with an audience in its initial run. Whoops. We'll discuss what we love about the movie, or perhaps don't love about it, and decide whether the movie is worth a revisit, which, quite frankly, I always think it's worth a revisit. If you enjoy our podcast, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, which is multiple places because we just added the TuneIn app and iHeartRadio. Right, Mike? Oh, yeah. So we are going to be talking about this week, Blue Velvet. By David Lynch. By David Lynch. I was going to sing the song, but I guess I'm not going to. She wore blue. That's all I got. <laughs> From the mind of David Lynch comes a modern day masterpiece. So startling. So provocative. <laughs> So mysterious that it will open your eyes to a world you have never seen before. All right. So Blue Velvet was released on September 19th, 1986. Uh, It was a limited release. It was not a a wide release. I don't think it ever was a wide release. Just so you know, it was released against the movie The Men's Club starring Frank Langella and Where the River Runs Black. Two films I have not seen. So, and I probably will never see unless somebody says you need to watch the men's club. Uh, It's called the men's club. I think uh, you have to watch it. Yes, indeed. Well, you are not a man. That's kind of the rule (laughs) of the men's club. To give you an idea of obviously September, we've talked about this before where September's kind of, I wouldn't say it's the dump month. Maybe back then it was the dump month where it's movies. It's not the summer. It's not necessarily into the you know oscar season which is you know november december kind of thing so it's basically where you put movies you don't know what to do with but a week after this movie was crocodile dundee which was a huge movie i mean it was a big movie because they made crocodile dundee too they don't do that unless the first one makes money this is true right so the budget for blue velvet was six million dollars it grossed domestically 8.5 million uh, which is actually I want to say remarkable, but I don't think that's necessarily a loss because it was a limited release movie. That's so. surprising for a limited release right. and something that's definitely not for everybody. Like I feel like oh, no, for everybody. not at all. This uh, well, we'll get into it. If you've seen this movie, you're probably going to know what, what we're referencing. <laughs> uh, rated R, 120 minutes. This was shot two, three, five, but it's shot anamorphic, which I don't know if you noticed when you were watching the movie. Some of the wide shots bowed a little. I did notice. Right. That, yeah. OK. I'm not like, I don't hate that. I mean, it's noticeable. It does kind of pull you out a little bit. But when I see that, I I don't know. I just, that doesn't bother me as much as some other stuff. In a movie like this, where you assume it's got like a, a, a tighter budget and a movie that's done by more of an auteur kind of director, I, I kind of gloss over it. If right. this was like an action film or a, you know, a thriller or something that, you know, that would kind of take me out of it. Okay. Uh, I agreed. 
Uh, written and directed by David Lynch, like we said, for those who are unfamiliar with David Lynch, he is responsible. He was the creator of the TV show Twin Peaks. Uh, he was also, I don't want to say director. I don't know if he wrote all these, but he directed most of them. Racerhead, The Elephant Man, Mulholland Drive, Dune, the original Dune, not the one that's coming. Wild at Heart and Lost Highway. Have you seen all those? Uh, yeah. You've seen all those movies? I, I really like David Lynch. Uh, interesting. Interesting. Which is weird because most of the time, uh, like, very, I would say, artistic directors like that, I don't tend I, to like. Yeah, I, I was going to say. Because I, I feel like they're more self-serving. But I, there's something about David Lynch that I, I really enjoy. You enjoy his weirdness. I really do enjoy his weirdness, and I don't say weirdness in a bad way. No, he's weird in a good way. Right. I think, and I, th- I don't think he doesn't try to be. He's not phony. He's not phony about it, and he's also not. He's not apologetic about it, but he's also not. He's not trying to elevate it to this higher like power. He's not trying to say, "Oh, because this means this and this." He's just, I want to try. I just want to be weird. He's not, he's authentic. He's yeah. not somebody who you, you get this sense of, I don't want to say douchiness, but I guess douchiness or an air of superiority, like, you know, because he has these different, different uh, viewpoints about life and perspective. I mean, we'll get into stuff from Blue Velvet. I know we talked about a little bit real briefly about like, you know, the whole Isabel Rossellini scene. Um, yeah. Right. So, you know, that's from something in his childhood, that kind of stuff. It's, it's authentic. And you know what? That's all you can ask for in a filmmaker is to, just to be authentic. Did you know that he was nominated for this movie? I knew the movie was nominated for an Oscar, but I didn't know what it was for. Right. So he was nominated for Best Director. This was in that year, which it's released 86. So the Oscars were 87, I guess. That year was the, I don't know, his first year, but one of the years where um, he, it was the only movie that was nominated for Best Director and not Best Picture. Which is, uh, yeah, that's it, like, right. Yeah. Right. Which is like, wow, you're really good, but we can't, we just can't recognize this movie because we honestly, it's probably, we don't know what to deal with it. To do with it. Um, so this was produced by Dino De Laurentiis, who had to set up his own distribution company to release it. So he started DEG um, just to release Blue Velvet because nobody would pick it up. Not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> and while I said this movie is 120 minutes, the original cut was four hours, which is 240 minutes. And I don't have I have the 2002 Special edition DVD. I don't have the, uh, but in 2011, the Blu-ray version, which is what you have or no, I don't, I don't, I don't own it. Okay. So the 2011 version actually has 50 minutes of that footage that they found. So they don't have, they couldn't find the, the the other two hours, but they found 50 minutes. And I guess there's like a a sex scene between Sandy and Jeffrey and, and Dorothy, I guess at the end of this movie, at the end of the movie, Isabella Rossellini plays Dorothy Valens in in the original cut. She kills herself at the end of the movie. Oh, right. So that's, that's more likely. I, that's what I was waiting for right. when I first saw it. All right. So I know I've been talking about some of the characters. Let me get into the cast. Uh, Dorothy Valens is played by Isabella Rossellini. Uh, Jeffrey Beaumont is uh, Kyle McLaughlin. Sorry, Dennis Hopper as Frank Booth. Laura Dern as Sandy Williams. Dean Stockwell as Ben. No last name. Dean Stockwell from Quantum Leap. Man. That's right. And Brad Dorff is in there as a, he's a small role. As Raymond. They're his one of Hopper's henchmen. One of Frank Booth's henchmen. I was going to put that in there. Oh, nice. Um, I mean, so that's basically like kind of a rundown of the movie itself in terms of, I guess, facts or kind of the nuts and bolts of the movie. Mm-hmm. I first saw this movie uh, not in 86 because I was 11. <laughs> and probably inappropriate for me. Um, I think I watched this movie when I was like first starting to watch movies. I th- I've talked about this before, kind of like um, after in college or after high school, just kind of like watching all these indies and watching all these 
movies that because I got into filmmaking, got into storytelling. But this is one of those movies that I watched. Oh, you need to see this movie. You need to see Blue Velvet. You know, I think I had seen some of David Lynch's stuff. I never was into Twin Peaks. I know you were. I'm a yeah, I'm a big right. Twin Peaks. Yeah. So I which I I saw in the notes that this movie inspired Twin Peaks. I can see some of that. There's some notes I have spread throughout. They're like, oh man, that's kind of this is very like Twin Peaks. This is very Twin Peaks. Yeah. Right. So the first takeaway I'm going to have from the, the first takeaway of this movie is. Well, I'm not I, I don't want to say that I'm a, uh, like I like David Lynch. I wouldn't say that if, hey, new David Lynch movies that I'm running to see it. You know what I mean? Like uh, they're tough watches. I, they I are. That, yeah. You have to like you have to almost prepare yourself for it. But at this time, when Blue Velvet came out, I don't think people. Because he had just come off Dune and Dune was a flop. Right. And um, I don't think people were. They didn't know what to expect when I mean, in terms of audiences, not just, you know, producers and directors, because they obviously read it. Right. I don't think they knew what to expect when they watched Blue Velvet. So my first takeaway was, you know, I'm watching the movie. I, this is I'm, I'm referencing watching it the other day and mm-hmm. watching it uh, when I first watched. it. Yeah. So like just watching it, the noir feels like a noir. Kids like investigating, like trying to figure out what's going on. He's. You know, I get the symbolism of the bugs, you know, you know, the under underbelly of this, like a term. I, um, I did not coin this. I read this uh, when I was doing research, the Reagan-esque society, you know, just like everything's happy, go lucky. It's supposed to be that it's not the 1950s, but it's supposed to be like almost like an alternate reality. I, where, yeah, I, I noted that. Yeah, it's right. a lot of stuff. He doesn't hide the fact that it's filmed in the 80s, but it's he's trying his hardest to make it like the 50s. or 60s, Right, 60s, right. Yeah. Um, so I think my first impression, and then I'll get you to break down the movie was I'm watching the movie going along 40 minutes in, we meet Frank Booth and then you're like, what the hell's going on? What is this movie about? But go ahead and kind of, uh, cause I didn't, I wasn't glossing over it. I just kind of wanted to toss out a first impression, but what was your, give us the, I guess a loose rundown of, of the plot of blue velvet. I mean, you kind of already did the plot is is fairly simple to the film so jeffrey beaumont is a college student who comes home after his father has some sort of accident seems like it's a stroke of some sort or um something so he has to come home to his family while home he's kind of melancholy he's walking through a field he finds a severed ear in the park uh he takes the severed ear brings it to the police Anyway, I was at the hospital this morning and coming home through the field behind our neighborhood, there behind Vista, I uh, found an ear. You did? A human ear? Yeah, I thought I should bring it to you. Yep, that's right. Let's take a look at it. Yes, that's a human ear, all right. Detective brings him to the coroner who takes examines the ear and basically tells Jeffrey and the detective, this person could unusual. Yeah, I, I didn't understand that at all. <laughs> Basically tells Jeffrey, you know, oh, like a rundown on the ear because Jeffrey's very interested in, you know, police work and detective work and all this. And the, the coroner says, you know, I can tell that this person could still have been alive when the ear was cut off. I can tell if they had died before it was cut off. I can tell you this much right now. This ear was cut off with a pair of scissors, which is pretty gross. Yeah, it is gross. <laughs> it's probably not easy to do. No. And so it should have been jagged. I'm just kidding. So Jeffrey wants to find out more about the case. He's told by the detective later on that day, you know, 
the case is ongoing, when the case is solved or closed, I can tell you more about it, but I can't tell you about talk to you about open cases. You understand. Jeffrey then meets Sandy Williams, played by Laura Dern, who is the detective's daughter and has overheard things about the case and basically points Jeffrey in the direction of the of this apartment complex and specifically the seventh floor of the apartment complex where someone is staying, where they think the ear might have originated from. Jeffrey. Uh, stupidly, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> decides I'm going to investigate this case myself. I think he's supposed to be naive. And he is very yeah. naive throughout it. He just thinks it's going to be like a case of the week. He's going to be like the junior detective solving the crime. Yep. Finds his way into the apartment where this, uh, by faking being an exterminator, gets yep. into the apartment, steals an extra set of keys, meets this woman, this beautiful Italian woman played by Isabella Rossellini, and decides the next night he's going to figure out what's going on in that apartment, sneaks in with the spare key, hides in the closet, and then finds out that he's Isabella Rossellini. <laughs> Lives there, finds she undresses. She finds him. She gets nude. She gets nude. Finds him in the closet. Yep. At knife point, makes him strip. Yep. Tit for tat. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and then kind of proceeds to molest him. Well, I mean, basically, yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's very odd. Yeah. And then is thrown back in the closet when her lover comes in no who's not really her lover because he is kind of forcing her to do these things right a man named frank played by dennis hopper comes in smacks her around tells her not to look at him is addicted to ether which he keeps on him at all times hang on hang on that's not ether what is it supposed to be well i don't know unless this is the name for ether amyl nitrate does he say that in the movie? No, but we're just, you just... one of my notes is that, not to interrupt you, one of my notes is that it, initially in the script, it was supposed to be helium, and he is supposed to have a squeaky voice. Oh, that would be so Lynch. Right, so way. Hopper said to, so Hopper told Lynch, like, listen, I know that people use amyl nitrate for, to enhance sexual experiences, so they use, they changed it, and that's what he's, that's what he's, but it would have been dumb if he had the helium, and he's like, eh. It would have been very Lynchy though, but Mommy. yeah, okay. <laughs> So he does this amyl nitrate and he's he goes into this weird kind of, I guess, baby fetish where she is now mommy and he's addicted to her blue velvet robe. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, so he proceeds to smack her around. Yep. Uh, they have sexual relations. Well, he mimes. He, he, he mimes, mimes raping her. Raping. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's very odd. Yeah. Uh, then he gets off. Jeffrey, who's been stuck in the closet watching this whole thing, is very kind of shook by the whole experience. Goes to make sure as Isabella Rosalini is okay. Um, who's Dorothy Valance is her name. Dorothy wants him, wants Jeffrey to hit her, even though he wants to comfort her. She's kind of, I guess, used to the trauma. Yeah, I'm not really. Uh, yeah. Yes. Go yes. ahead. So Jeffrey goes home, decides I'm going to solve this case. I'm going to put Frank away. Kind of finds out that Dorothy is being held against her will. Frank has her husband and child. Uh, the ear probably belongs to Dorothy's husband, and he's keeping them to make sure that she does exactly what Frank says. Spoiler, it does. So Jeffrey, over the course of the film, gets further and further over his head, kind of has this relationship with Dorothy, but also at the same time, Sandy, who he's also falling in love with, um, who is a more appropriate relationship. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. 
I mean, that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, you don't need to keep going. Yeah, well, it's a lot to unbox. It's it's a, it's a whole lot to unbox. But basically, Jeffrey gets further and further over his head as he tries to infiltrate this little like group, CD group, and free Dorothy from her captors. Essentially, right. Well, I mean, the story is essentially about. I touched on it briefly. It's about the idyllic nature of society where they live, but the, but there's an underbelly of evil that works with any society. No, that's yeah, that would be the theme of the yeah. right. I mean, then you get that when you first see um his father when his father has the heart attack or stroke. His stroke is it a stroke? They never say. It, it seems like it's a something stroke, with his neck, but he's yeah, it's a neck thing. He's got he's in. He's in the brace. He's got a trachea tube. So I don't know. It's got to be a stroke. It probably was a stroke. They might have said it. Maybe we both missed it, but it's got to be. I think it's something like a stroke. <laughs> and um, so when he's laying on the ground convulsing, uh, it, the camera goes down and it shows the bugs and all right. the gross beetles. It's a really cool shot. It is. It's disgusting, but it is. Um, and then it, it, that's that comes back later because Sandy, who is uh, Laura Dern's character, Tells him about the dream she had about a robin, and and the whole idea is that the robin represents love, and you know that she knew it would be okay because she saw the robin that everything would turn out. At the end of the movie, you see that fake robin <laughs> with the beetle in its mouth. Yeah, love conquers evil all the time, which is you know a you know a great theme. But that's I mean that's the main theme. The idea of you know Jeffrey is somebody who is from that idyllic society, uh, civilization, I guess. And he gets a peek into the dark side and it also almost changes him a bit because there's that they have a sexual scene, uh, him and uh, Dorothy. Right. And mm-hmm. she wants him to hit her and he hits her and, and then they go, they go back the next morning. He's upset. Yeah, he that gives he, in. Yeah. He, he gave into that. Down. Right. Um, so it that's a that's a major that's probably the biggest theme in this movie is just kind of like the two different sides of life or society. Um, which is what Blue Velvet kind of, you know, talks about throughout the two hours of the movie yeah. and what Lynch is trying to say. So the whole stuff with Dorothy in terms of her sexual appetite and the fact that she wants him to hit her. I didn't know if that was a result of the relationship with, well, it's not a relationship with her captor, Frank Booth, who has clearly kidnapped her husband and her son. so that. Cause he's fallen in love with her, but like, I don't know how long that's been going on. Right. You know, so I don't know if, if her predilection to equating love to with, um, violence is something that she had before this. Now there was something that I had read, uh, with, in terms of like the whole idea of Dorothy's husband, Don and her, that he was a, he was part of this crime syndicate. Well, that's what I assume, because right. how else do you get? Yeah. And he was trying to go. He was an informant for the cops. He was trying to go clean. And they found out the man in yellow, who is the the officer that's uh, Officer Williams partner. Right. Um, who is like obviously a bad cop. He informed Frank and Frank came in to, to, to clean or he informed their bosses and Frank came in to clean it up. And this and he met Dorothy, found love. And that's why he kidnapped Don so that he could keep the, the whole reason why he's telling Dorothy, you know, stay alive, stay alive is because, you know, or he'll he'll kill Don. It's like that's why he she's tried she's tried to kill herself because of this. So in terms of Dorothy Valens, the character, I don't get a full sense of maybe why or how in turn like some of those questions. But honestly, 
I don't really need to know. I mean, I, you know what I mean? Like, this is just kind of like if not, no, I'm not saying nitpicking, but doing a deep dive into that character. Right. I, there are some questions that I have, but I mean, that's just that's because the story is interesting and I was intrigued. Well, I also know that David Lynch prefers not to give you the entire mystery. He prefers not to answer it. Um, it's something he talked about a lot when uh, the newest season of Twin Peaks came out and he left a lot of questions unanswered is because he enjoys the mystery. He enjoys putting viewers and readers and everything on, on, on a mystery. And he doesn't necessarily care if we solve it. He doesn't care if it's solved. The answers are not as important as the intrigue of the mystery itself. So right. he prefers to show you things that get you curious. He doesn't necessarily even have an answer himself. Right. Um, I can respect that, and that's fine, and that's 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 great. You know, I'm I'm okay with that. I mentioned that, like, you know, 40 minutes in, you get to the miming rape scene that Frank Booth does, and he's watching, and then she pulls him out, like, she pulls Jeffrey out of the closet, and then she kind of tries to have sex with him, like she ch- tells it to hit her and stuff like that. This is the first time, not when they actually do have sex. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when I watched this movie. So, oh, are you already recording? Or are you stopping? I it? had paused. Okay, you, okay. You, I, I unpaused. You can go. All right. So this isn't a movie that I normally would have been drawn to uh, back in the day when I was watching movies. But so watching it again, I kind of I kind of remembered my original experience where the stuff that's happening on screen is odd. And, you know, I wouldn't say it emotionally affected me in terms of like, oh, my God, why? Maybe because I've seen so much now mm. back then, maybe. But. The story is still intriguing enough to keep me locked in. Like I'm, I wanted to see it through, and I think that's a testament to the writing and the directing and, and the performance and just the movie itself. There's something about this movie that, when you watch it, you need to finish it, and you need to take it in, and you need to think about it for a few days. Not, it's not a movie that you can just, hey, I saw Blue Velvet. Yeah, it was fine. What do you want to see tomorrow night? It's a movie like, hey, I saw Blue Velvet. We need to talk about it. Did you see it? Like, it's one of those type of movies. Absolutely. The story is very simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a complicated story. Agreed. The story is essentially young man tries to solve a crime himself about a woman being held captive and by possible murder. It's, it's, it's a pretty familiar kind of crime trope, kind of thriller noir story. But he peppers in all these themes, all these hidden messages, all these everything he puts in there has a meaning there's a purpose for everything he puts in there um and he's he's just a very interesting director it's like why did he choose to do this why did he choose to do this you can pick apart everything in a david lynch thing which is why when i first got into david lynch was i mean i knew about twin peaks because i'm a huge x-files fan and i knew that the x-files is essentially twin peaks if someone not as weird as david lynch (laughs) tried to do it um but in in college, we started watching some of some parts of his films. We watched parts of Blue Velvet. We watched um, Mulholland Drive. We watched a couple of other clips from his other movies. And for some reason, it's, it's like I I really liked him. Um, I think because a lot of what he did was similar to some stage work I had been learning in my drama um, major as well. At Austria University. At Austria University. <laughs> Shout out. Uh, go Pride. <laughs> but. As I went on, I really started to that. I think that's why I really liked it. It wasn't the phoniness of like being like super out there and artistic just to be artistic. 
like, oh, if you don't get it, that's it. And he's he'll be like, well, I did this because of this, and then and because I thought this was a good theme. Yeah. And it's like, all right, all right, I like that. And that's a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of, of thought goes into every shot and every take he does, even if it's weird and out there. Right. And he's definitely not for everybody. You can't just watch some of his work and just watch it for the story value. You have to watch it for the themes and imagery he puts in there. Well, there's a there's not to put you on the spot. OK. Can you give me an example of a movie where you felt the uh, author, director, writer was inauthentic? In terms of that, right? I, I, that's a tough. Putting I know that's a tough. Like, that's a tough question to ask. That's, how about, that's how about a tough. Think about it while we're I'll, talking, and if you can, I'll come try back. to if think you about it. Yeah, because I'm interested to see like where you saw something where you're just like, oh, that's I know this dude. That's not that's BS. That's not that's phony. He's just trying to do something, you know. Like, and this is not. I'm not saying this is inauthentic, but I'm saying right like, in the terms of like when Robert Zemeckis said "What Lies Beneath," he's really just doing Hitchcock. It's it's almost like an homage to Hitchcock. And I'm not saying that that's a bad. That's in my example. I'm just giving you an example of that. Well, funny you should say. I Uh-oh. don't like "What Lies Beneath." Well, then I've then given you, know you your, that, I've so given you your you example. Why don't you like "What Lies Beneath"? We'll we we'll get into it because I know you have it on the list, so I'm sure we'll get. To okay, that's what fine. Lies beneath. But right. there are there are multiple reasons I don't. Okay, like that's fine. You don't like Harrison Ford as a bad guy, is that it? He can be a bad guy. He can be a bad guy. Right. That's not one of the reasons okay. I don't like. All right. Um, to your point, the version that I watched, which is the 2003 or 2002 special edition DVD, has a documentary on there, and I didn't get to the whole documentary because it was 1 a.m. in the morning, and it was it looked like it was like 45 minutes, and I was like, <laughs> I gotta go to bed. But I did watch the opening, and in that opening, they had Siskel and Ebert's review, and Ebert hated this movie, and he hated this movie because. He didn't like the fact that Isabella Rossellini was naked uh, for quite some time. Even the scene where she comes out onto the front lawn and she's completely naked and she's like dazed and stuff like that. And he didn't like the fact that, you know, why would you put your actress through that? For what reason? I need a better reason than what, you know, what was put on screen like that just because. And hang on. Yeah. Well, but hang on. And to your to your. To your point about the authenticity of David Lynch, that is from an experience that he had as a child with his brother coming home from school. They they saw a naked lady in the middle of the street day just walking around. And that image stuck with David Lynch throughout his life. And now the, the way he put Blue Velvet together was he didn't just sit down and write Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet took years to write. And it was just different moments where he was like, I always wanted to sneak into a woman's room and, and watch her from the closet. You know the 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 days naked woman just different things that I, I always was interested in the dichotomy dichotomy of good and evil like that kind of stuff yeah all this came together to form blue velvet so it's not like so he took pieces of his life or piece of you know and I'm, I'm just trying to like give validity to your point of the authenticity well, of David Lynch yeah. as an auteur and you look at the nudity in the movie and it's like there's nudity in the movie but it's not. For eighty six, for for nineteen eighty six. Oh, I mean, there's there's nudity. I'm yeah. not saying like there's not nudity. I'm saying it's not done in a provocative or sexual way. It's done in a provocative way, but it's not done in a in a way that should it, it should kind of disturb you. It's not you. gratuitous. It's, it's not gratuitous. It's disturbing. It's not something that should arouse you. It's well, it's something correct. that should upset you. It's and part that's, of the movie. And that if that upset Ebert, then good. That's that's the that's the reason for the nudity. Well, that's movie. to the point to that point, because I have another note. All right, So there was a critic and I, I'm going to say his last name wrong. But his name is Mark Kermode or Kermode. It's K-E-R-M-O-D-E. I apologize if I said that wrong. 
I believe he is a critic for BBC or something like that. So he talked about when he first, he first saw the movie, he walked out on it and he gave the film a poor review when it first came out in the first time. But then he went back and watched the film over time. And three years ago in 2016, he had this quote and he said, as a film critic, it taught me that when a film really gets under your skin and really provokes a visceral reaction, you have to be very careful about assessing it. I didn't walk out on Blue Velvet because it was a bad film. I walked out on it because it was a really good film. The point was at the time I wasn't good enough for it, which is very interesting. And I think that because there are times that I have not liked the movie and I'm like, I don't I don't know why I didn't like I don't like this movie, but it's not that I didn't like it. I just I couldn't get it my head around it and you have you have to rewatch movies i mean we've done that here yeah you know we've you the infamous episode which i think we should use as a patreon um uh like a tease oh yeah is, okay uh, we when we first started this podcast we wanted to do a practice one just to kind of do one practice one for us so right. we did the movie sphere because mr butler here liked that movie and he was like we should do sphere and i said what no so then we did it and then go ahead and you tell us tell what happened and then the entire uh, <laughs> podcast episode became why I shouldn't like Sphere. And I had to agree with everything <laughs> because you can like a movie and remember the things that you like about it and not remember the things you don't like about it. And then, like, I think what you're saying is it works both ways. Right. And just because, like, if one thing kind of gets under your skin and you don't like about it or, like you said, you can't wrap your head about it or understand it. There are films I didn't like before I went to film school and I watch again and I like or films that I was just too young for like in the case of sphere i think i was not old enough to understand what was bad about it and right. now i you know now you do you see that there's more to than just okay you like the story but everything else is bad well there's different yeah. you also have to take into consideration your emotional age your you know your what you have experienced in terms mm -hmm. of life like you watch a movie at 13 but then you watch it at 25 you are different to watching you know you you like if I like a movie like Inside Out, which deals with, you know, growing up and becoming an adult, I watch that movie. If I'm at 13, I'm just like, yeah, it's pretty funny. But if I watch that movie 10, 15, 20 years later, there's an emotional connect to that. Once because it's like, up, yeah. exactly. I think it's very it's also very interesting that to be fair to Roger Ebert, may he rest in peace. <laughs> um, he did. He never sees it. Listen, I love David Lynch as a as a writer director. I just that movie just, you know, for whatever reason, he didn't like that part. But to be fair, you did write a lot of movies that were considered softcore porn, Roger. So you did write some <laughs> movies that had that other risque stuff. So, but regardless, you know, I think that what the point I'm laboring to make here is that this is a movie that you can't just watch in one sitting and think you understand it. And you, you may need time to get to it. And I know that we're doing a podcast called Forgotten Cinema. This isn't probably necessarily forgotten in terms of people that love film or love David Lynch. No, I think it's a pretty well known like like I learned it in film club, learned about it in film class. And stuff. Right. Yeah. I would make the argument that what's forgotten about this movie is it's it's a different watch when you watched it your first time to when you watch it again to when you watch it later. There are things in this movie that are layered that you need to revisit this movie to un to remember. <laughs> see what I did <laughs> to just remember why this movie is considered one. I mean, it's on a lot of best 50, best 20, best 10 list of all time for people. Absolutely. Right. But if you went, I think if you went to the average person and say, hey, have you ever seen Blue Velvet or have you watched it? They're going to say no. I'll, I think in that right. case, it's forgotten. They'll say no, but like, I guarantee you this. If they're, let's say they were between the ages of 15 and maybe 14, 13 and 
20, 25 boys. The reason they watch this movie, because somebody told them that somebody woman gets naked in it. And, that, and exactly. <laughs> and they are not. And they probably watch this movie and they're like, what? Like, what is going on here? And they probably made fun of everything else. But when the nudity came, they're probably like, oh, about it. But that's I guarantee you. That's why a lot of people were drawn to this movie. I'm sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, um, you know, dudes suck. But yeah. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, we've, we've broken down a bunch of it, but give me some because you're the David Lynch fan. OK. So I have some notes in terms of my, my watching and, and like I have some like funny stuff that I was thinking of when I was watching it. But what I want to ask you is, do you like Kyle MacLachlan as Jeffrey Beaumont? Because there were moments in this movie where I, I, I was just eh, like he gave me a creep vibe. Kyle, I really like Kyle MacLachlan. Okay. I actually when I was watching it this time, I told um, my fiance, I was like, I told Elise, I was like, hey. I don't get why he didn't become more of a leading man. He's he's a good looking guy. I think he's really good. He can play creepy and nice and basically at the same time. And that's why Lynch chooses him is he's the boy next door who kind of hangs out in the basement, I think is what he said. Yeah. So he kind of can play both roles. And I, I think in this, he's very young. And I think there are times where I don't think he was ready for this role. But okay. you need somebody younger because he's supposed to be younger. Sure. Uh, but this is a very tough role. So there are there are parts where I think it's like when you do Shakespeare, you know, a lot of actors who do like Hamlet, Hamlet's supposed to be a teenager. And you see a lot of actors who play Hamlet, they're 40, they're 50. You need that experience to be able to really get into and dig deep and, and do a role like that. And I think it's the same with Jeffrey. There's a lot going on with Jeffrey. He's dealing with his father, which I think is what drives the impetus to him trying to solve the crime is because he's trying to get that out of his head do something other than that because he can't just sit there and just be sad. Um, you're dealing with his love for Sandy. You're dealing with his love for the mystery, his his interest in the sexual nature of what's going on, but also his need to stay good and in the in like you said, in the light on the on the right side of everything. And that's a lot to unpack when you're just starting out as an actor. Well he had done he had done excuse me, he well, had did just started. Right. Yeah. He yeah. had done other stuff. But I mean Dune is even though it's a lynchy dune, the way they filmed it, it was kind of a popcorn. But it was a big budget movie. Right. Right. But it's it's not a deep dive kind of a thing. Like this is a deep dive kind of an acting thing. And I think there are some scenes he does very well and some scenes where, yeah, I was also watching it kind of like. Mm. Yeah. But then you watch him in Twin Peaks and your opinion would change. I, I, I And I will say I've never I've never seen the show Twin Peaks. I, right. I mean, I never watched it. In terms of like, hey, let's watch Twin Peaks. I've maybe seen an episode, maybe a clip of an episode here or there. Right. I did actually watch the movie. Doesn't make much sense, but it was okay. fine. It was fine. It was, I understood. <laughs> it was good. I, I enjoyed the movie. I just never got into the show. And maybe maybe one day I will. But could you have seen Val Kilmer as this character? Because he was offered the role before Kyle McLaughlin. And he turned it down because he thought the script was pornographic. But when he saw the movie, he was like, I would have done that movie. Yeah, I mean... I don't, I don't know if he could have had Val Kilmer always comes across to me as as kind of smarmy. Well, back then he did real genius. Yeah. So you're, guess, you're, like you're picturing him like that. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the, the scene where he breaks down because he's finally hit her and gave in. Yeah. I I don't like it's it's tough to picture, but I do like Val Kilmer. So maybe he could have done it. Right. OK. 
I don't, I don't know. That's, well, I'm that's just saying tough. Kyle McLaughlin wasn't the first choice. Which is surprising because David Lynch and Kyle McLaughlin go together like well, you know, now peanut butter do, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure that just cemented. But he has a habit of using a lot of his same people again. Laura Dern. Laura Dern he's yeah. used before a bunch of times. Um, Jack Nance, who's one of the um, one of Frank's henchmen, one of his goons, mm-hmm. the guy with the little yeah. hat and the mustache. Yeah. He's a major character in Twin Peaks. Yeah. And uh, also he's eraser head. Well, they also offered the Frank Booth part to a bunch of different people like Michael Ironside. He also wanted Robert Loggia as Frank Booth, but he couldn't do it. But he wrote a part for him and lost Highway because he wanted. And it's almost like the essentially the kind of the same character for Lost Lost Highway is really weird. (laughs) This is this is for anybody who has not seen David Lynch. This maybe would be a good starting point for David Lynch because it's came in comparison to other films i would say that and wild at heart yes because wild at heart i think wild at heart is more i don't want to say mainstream but it's more like you said tame than compared to the other stuff i would say if you're going to start down the, i would say watch wild at heart first right that's okay that's watch that's blue velvet if you are digging blue velvet then go into david lynch <laughs> or you can do what i did after uh, film class and watch his student film collection which oh was available on netflix i'm not sure if it still is it's rough. It's it's tough. It's really weird and out there. But if you can get through that and kind of pick out the themes and what he's going for in those very, very strange. Some of them are animated um, and dark and twisted short films. Then when you watch his other stuff, you can see where he's pulling from and what he's doing. You get a better sense of him and you'll be prepared for anything <laughs> he throws at you in the other at, movies. At short film student films are all I've seen some re- not in terms of terrible in terms of like they're badly done, but the themes and the elements and what people are trying to say. I've seen some really messed up stuff. That doesn't mean anything. It's just, that's what you're supposed to be doing. I understand. You're supposed you're to experiment. To, yeah. Yeah. And they are interesting. They're really good. I, I would, I would, I would recommend that. And then anything would be okay. Cause if you watch, or you can go the other way and kind of build yourself up, or you can just take it all in one shot. OD on some hardcore David Lynch and then kind of calm. Everything else is calm in comparison. Okay. And it also makes it easier to pick out his themes and what he does. He definitely knows. That's the thing. I think we're both. I I almost feel like this is turning into an episode where we're trying to defend David Lynch to critics who say they don't get his stuff, but it's not. It, he, he, like you said, he's authentic. Right. I don't think we're trying to defend him against critics. I think we're trying to prepare an audience okay. for David Lynch because I think that's because, like you said, this movie's not so much forgotten, but by mainstream audiences, it's not something that they would normally watch. Right. Well, you would you would you if someone made well, you probably see Blue Velvet in the theaters now. If if someone made it, if this movie never existed and someone did it right now, you'd probably see it. I mean, we movies like Midsummer and stuff like that, and people. Yeah, Midsummer's like four hours long. Enough. No, but I'm saying like I'm saying a <laughs> movie you. that's not mainstream. That's not a mainstream movie. Right. Yeah. I mean, people watch it, but you you just have to kind of understand where he's coming from and understand that there's something about it if, if you just look at it and go that's just weird <laughs> well then you don't like movies yeah he's not just trying to be weird and right. he does very interesting stuff like i love the way he plays with sound in this film which he does a lot in twin peaks as well and um some of his other films and it's just i love the way every scene every not scene every setting is its own world mm-hmm. so every setting has its own sound so like there's the scene where he goes into the into Dorothy's apartment and there's music playing. It's a very calm vibe and he shuts the door and all of a sudden every sound stops. It's just a completely different soundtrack and it's 
you hear this low wind. It's almost like a sci-fi corridor, <laughs> and it's just this shitty like apartment building, but it's got its own like home, like hum, like its own tone, and it's like entering a different world each time. And I find that very fascinating. I love mm-hmm. when he does that because other filmmakers would gradually ease you into a new setting or, or a new scene, especially if it's con- a connected location. That's confidence. That's confidence as him as a as a uh, writer director, knowing what he wants, right, and doing it. Like there are. Y- there are people that don't have the confidence in their own abilities to do something. And, you know, they let other people's voices and you're supposed to listen to everybody as a director, but right. they let those, you know, overrule them. Like I remember, um, like I like stuff that I shoot. I like long shots. I just like one shots. I like stuff playing within the gap, within the action. I don't like to cut cutaways. I don't like to do coverage. I just don't like it. And um, the short that, well, I was hopefully doing in a month or so the first scene I had initially wrote down, I had an extra character and we were going to, we were talking about coverage and this, that, and the other thing. And then I rewrote it because I like the idea of having my two characters in the shot. And I, and all I'm doing is it's supposed to be at a bar. Okay. So all I'm doing is pushing clo- down from far away into a two shot down the bar on them and have people, I want to have like somebody in the front, it's supposed to be at the end of the night, somebody in the front, like doing ketchups and stuff like that. But like, that's all I want. I just want one shot. And I don't want coverage and I don't want cutaways because I don't want that. I just want one shot. Well, that's. But I'm I'm saying in terms of like confidence as what you want and what you go for. You talk about one shot and when we're recording this once upon a time in Hollywood just came out and it just brought to mind the shot in the bar where they're doing it's the fake scene where they're they're going through um, the scene in the bar with Timothy Oliphant and Leonardo DiCaprio and they do the shot that's behind them. And the camera just comes around into that two shot. Oh, right, right. From I think from Rick's close up, and just suddenly comes around, and it's like a, it's like a two three minute dialogue, and it comes around and turns into this different shot. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoy that as well. Well, there's in that movie, not to go off topic, but that movie has a ton of shots that just hold. Right. That just the action plays out when when he's walking back from the, when he's walking past all the hippies and they're yelling at him. He's walking up to his car. Yeah. And you have to find that his car's been got the the knife in it and stuff like that's the whole one time. like. Yep. Right. And you're just like, you don't realize it because you're like, you, you see him walking towards you. And I'm talking about Brad Pitt's character, Cliff. You see him walking towards you and the camera moves down and you're like, what's he look? What's he going to see? What's he going to see? You're into that because you want to know what he's right. about to see. So, yes. Agreed. But David Lynch does not do that. that much. You know, he does not move the camera. Right. No, I'm not. I'm not. I wasn't that. Oh, whole, I know. Yeah, just, it's all about out. it's all about the confidence of knowing what you want to do. And but then you get directed doing like it. that. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. he's very much about holding the shot, not mm-hmm. letting you see the world around you. Right. Um, this is how you're going to view this world. This is how you're going to view that world. Like when he leaves, the apartment is is very like warm and stuff because Dorothy is. And then you get to the apartment complex itself, which you get the feeling maybe Frank owns or something like that. And you get this very dark, drab look. The camera's slightly tilted. You get this above shot, which kind of reminded me of like survival horror games from the 90s, like Resident Evil or Silent Hill and stuff like that where it's meant to kind of throw you off and make you uncomfortable because of the way you're viewing it. And it's more voyeurish. Well, when you're talking about when they're in the hallway, whenever they go into the hallways of that apartment. Yes. Well, back to what I was talking about in terms of how it was anamorphic. I think that adds to the hallway scene because they're all in the shot and it's bowed. Yeah. And you're kind of like, this is a weird, weird looking, you know, image here. What's going on here? And that puts you instantly at ease, uh, uh, you know, uh, not at ease. They're unease. Like you just kind of like, what is happening here? Yeah. And it puts you on your edge of your feet, edge of your toes. There's a movie called with Julianne Moore uh, called Safe. And in that movie, she has, uh, it's from mid 90s, I believe. 
directed by oh, I'm gonna remember I can't remember his name. He did Happiness. Um, Todd Solons. Okay. Solons, yeah. So in that movie, she is somebody who ha- she's an extreme germaphobe, and like she just has issues. She's just and, and throughout the movie, she gradually like just becomes more inclusive. She gradually becomes you know little not want to say insane, but just anxiety ridden. Okay. Throughout the movie, they have the hum of fluorescent lights that play on the soundtrack and it gets louder towards towards throughout the movie towards the end where you don't realize it but as an audience member you are getting uneasy yeah you are getting like what what is because you don't realize you're hearing that i think that's extremely smart and and awesome and but i think to your point that whole scene the, the whole way it looks and everything how everything's set up that's geared to make you kind of lean forward in your seat and be like what the hell? Like, what? Yeah. Why, why am I so amped up here? He starts to make it more like the the, the further it goes in the movie, it becomes more of a, right. a house of horrors. It becomes right. a little different, right? And then this all goes to us talking about you need to watch this movie more than once because you need to understand like it's not just hey, I'm weird. I'm telling this weird story. Check it out. It's yeah. Uh, this is what I'm telling you, and you. It's not just a one viewing type of movie. Yeah, this is a simple story, but I'm trying to get the theme across and right. give you a feeling. That but, feeling is more important than maybe the story. That being said, I laughed a couple times at this movie. <laughs> You're supposed to. He's the stuff that's weird and funny is weird and funny. He he doesn't like one of his profile photos is him holding a chicken because he thinks it's funny. Well, like, one of the just one of the weird. notes that I had was that when they were doing the the this first scene with Frank Booth and he mimes raping her, like throughout the entire scene when they're shooting it, Lynch is laughing. He just he's laughing, and his brother was saying he's telling a story. Like I don't know why he's laughing. He's just we're doing the scene and this intense scene. He's just laughing and he says because it just looks ridiculous and then she's like and then i watch the movie now and i can't stop laughing because <laughs> so i thought that was odd or but awesome yeah Mommy. oh mommy mommy Mommy, mommy loves you. Baby wants to fuck. Well, some of the stuff that I laughed at was uh, some of the lines. Like when he first goes to see the uh, police officer, Officer Williams, and he talks about being a cop. And, and, and he, I'm sorry, he goes back to his house in the night when he first sees meets Sandy. Meets Sandy like yeah. five minutes later, and he's talking about you know being a cop. And and Jeffrey goes, it "Must be great," and like. The guy, Williams, like in deadpan is like, it's horrible, too. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, it was almost like, do you remember uh, Village of the Damned, the uh, remake with Mark Hamill? Yeah. yeah. OK, so there's a moment in that movie where Mark Hamill comes out and and like, I think they've like maybe on their third or fourth death. And somebody, I don't know if it's Christopher Reeve or somebody was like, oh, my God, what's going on? Mark Hamill's like, ah, it's the children. Like, it's like all like serious, like immediately. And it like throws you back. And but, so that was one scene I left. Also. I, I don't know. Did they have a Heineken? Uh, I was going to put the product placement. Product placement. Yeah. Well, like, did they, did the Heineken give them money? Well, like, I couldn't stop laughing when he was like, you don't like Heineken? Why not? And she's like, well, my dad drinks beer. Oh yeah. King of, K- beers. King of beers. Like, it's almost like, I'm not going to get out, get with this one. I love, <laughs> I left at that. And then I laughed toward the end when Dennis Hopper has Jeffrey. And he's like, what kind of beer you want? Heineken. Heineken. <laughs> Paps Blue Ribbon. <laughs> Well, did you notice that when they go up to the place and like, oh, this is it. That's actually the sign. That's actually the name of the place. They when they go to Ben's. Oh, that's actually the name of the place. There's a sign that says this, this is, is it. it. Yeah. <laughs> he just all this, this weird stuff that's just amazing. 
you know, the doll on the couch when they go into was um, that a doll? That's the doll. I thought that was a person. No, in it's, a, it's like a doll. It's like a life size doll in the apartment. Dean Stockwell's character's apartment, Ben, right? Ben, yep. In Ben's apartment. And it, did you also notice it just disappears? Yes. Well, they disappear. They disappear. Like, and we're out of here, boop. Well. And yeah. they go, no, the, the, the doll disappears too? The doll disappears in the middle of a scene as well. Oh, they don't, they're okay. still there, but the doll okay. just kind of vanishes. But okay. then, yes, they vanish, which is the most Twin Peaks cut they have. Okay. The most David Lynchy cut, I should say. Yeah. That's, that's like, ooh, if you watch any other film, that would happen a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like he's preparing you. This is me. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, yeah, which comes toward the end. So then you're already too into it to leave after he does that cut. But that's the kind of stuff they do in a lot of his other films. And that's when Ben, again, played by Dean Stockwell, has the when he's singing the song Mm -hmm. and he's got the the light. He was supposed to have a microphone, but in rehearsal, he was using the light. And David Lynch's like, I like that. Just use the light. Yeah. So it's and I and. For such a small role, Dean Stockwell makes such an impression. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. I thought he was like, I couldn't remember. I forgot his character, to yeah. be honest. And I was like, what, what does he do in this movie? Like, what, what, what else is it? And then he died. And then, and then the, the woman that went with them, um, they, when they were going to go slap Jeffrey around oh, the Dino. And then she gets on the roof and just starts dancing. I'm just like, all right. <laughs> just uncomfortable, which is probably there to make you uncomfortable. Oh, it's just, oh, the entire movie is meant to make you. Oh, feel something. Yeah. When, when it starts off, when it starts off and you have the shot of the rose or the tulips, the red tulips and the yellow tulips and then the the, the, the firemen fire waving. Yeah. Okay. Then it gets into the death and it gets it. But then when it comes back, it bookends that with all the reverse angle, all those reverse shots. And, you know, it's it's we're back to normal, quote unquote. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Jeffrey has seen this side of the you. We have all seen this world. We're Jeffrey. And now we're coming back and we choose to come back almost we don't need to see that world again yeah yeah we're, we're good <laughs> <laughs> again you're the david lynch fan so i like uh, i'm i'm curious to because this is your second time watching it yeah but i haven't watched it in a long time mm-hmm. um i actually think i watched this before twin peaks so mm-hmm. uh just, just a lot of stuff that you know that he does that's it's very reminiscent of stuff that he does later on like i can tell like he's like Dune was a like a, a studio film. Dune was, and he does put like his own kind of spin on it, which is why I don't think it was very successful. Well, he's he's coming off of Eraserhead. He's coming off of Elephant Man, right? Which Elephant Man is also, I wouldn't say it's it's mainstream. It's it's very much like I'm telling this story. Obviously, it's something that happened. Right. You can't really. I guess we should include go that. Gamora, we should probably State. include that into if you want to get into David Lynch. Do want to start off slow? We should probably include that in terms Elephant of Man. Wild at Heart. And- I feel like a lot of people have seen Elephant Man though, uh, and it plays on TV. I bet you nobody knows what we're talking about. Really? Oh, I guarantee you. First time I'm, I'm talking like- about people that are maybe like were born in you know 19, 1999 or two thousand. No, they probably right. have no idea what we're talking about. Yeah, you can start with. Do Elephant you see Man, TCM Classics, The Elephant Man, anywhere? You never see it. It's probably where I first watched it. Really? Uh, yeah, I'm talking I about like I'm TV talking about the theaters yeah. and shit like that. Oh, in theaters? No, yeah. But you can see some stuff like when it opens and you've got the the blue velvet yep. um, curtains and stuff like that. That's very reminiscent of stuff he does in Twin Peaks. He always opens on like red curtains. Red curtains are a big part of Twin Peaks. It, it's in Twin Peaks, the other world that they enter, which is kind of sort of hell, is red curtains. Curtains are a big part of that show. And so it's interesting to see how he uses it again here um, and the cloth again like he does later on, but this is all blue. So it's almost kind of like the opposite of the red room. The blue velvet is almost supposed to be calming. It even calms down your villain. It calms down the, the horrible monster that is Frank. I love the stuff like zooming into the moldy ear and then coming out of the fresh ear at the end yep. because the, when he enters the, the, 
terrible world, I think. It, it begins as that entrance into that tunnel. That, yeah. The entrance into hell is that moldy ear. So when you're coming out, yep. afterward, you're coming out of this fresh, mm -hmm. un, untainted ear, I guess, right. I would say. Yeah, the imagery and the symbolism is is not is overt. It's not, it's not like hidden. Like, you know what's going on. Right. Right. I already mentioned the background sound, which he does all the time. That, I, those different worlds, I love that. I meant to, I meant to piggyback onto your sound comment. I actually enjoy the score. Like, it's classic Hollywood, almost like very... Very classy Hollywood, very, very noir, very old school 50s, right, which he uses in the opening credits as right. well, which is the time period he's trying to evoke, mm -hmm. I think, without trying to evoke a time period, which is also kind of similar to a lot of his other things is he's I don't want to say anachronistic because he's not whatever he's filming. It takes place during that time, but he also has gives it this. 60s kind of flair or style and it's, he uses very the same composer very a, a lot right not always well the in terms of like the setting it's very 50s but we went straight to the 80s almost like right. it's we skip 60s and 70s and but like the underbelly is what the real world is and then as he gets further and further he dresses more and more like he's in like Ungo Bungo or something like that. <laughs> he gets very like 80s rock synth band kind of looks he gets the skinny ties tie gets skinnier and then when he's out of it he gets this white you know, button down shirt, mm -hmm. like he's back in suburbia, which I think is interesting. So I also know David Lynch is a big fan of like the 80s synth pop fans. So it almost was like he was alluding to them being the seedy side side of things. Mm -hmm. So did you know that the song at the end when Jeffrey and Sandy are dancing is Julie Cruz doing the song Mysteries of Love and Julie Cruz does the song that plays throughout Twin Peaks. Interesting. She sings it at the opening uh, scene in the club they always go to. And it plays quite often throughout the entire thing. And she does a couple other songs for Twin Peaks. But I think that's interesting. So I'm listening to the song going, that's, that's the lady from Twin Peaks. And it's <laughs> very haunting and weird, but kind of beautiful at the same time and this, sad. This is becoming a Twin Peaks Easter egg episode. It's, I think, uh, if... Oh, I'm not complaining. It's the easiest way to kind of understand David Lynch because he did... Well, with the new season, it's like 40 some odd episodes of the show where they're all hour long episodes. So you really get a sense of him okay. in this show and you are following a story. It, But at the same time, it's like his most obscure stuff, but with a story that's easy to follow as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that's I always go back to that when I'm trying to understand where he's coming from, because you can explore those themes a lot deeper in a, in a TV show where you've done that. And what I also think is interesting about Twin Peaks, the show is. Movies that are are strange and use these kind of symbolism and and kind of go off the rails and into more obscure cinema mm -hmm. you don't see in a tv show very often i hear it i think because i think they're scared they'll lose an audience and not keep them but this is one that was one show that actually tried to do that so you're sandy williams and you're in the car with jeffrey beaumont and you say to jeffrey beaumont i don't know if you're a detective or a pervert and jeffrey goes well that's for me to know you to find out why are you not getting out of that car? I love that quote. <laughs> I wrote that quote down. I think that quote's amazing. Why are you not getting I would have been like, all right, so I'll see you later, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> also, I would like you to explain the quote to me. Not that I don't need it explained, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. I have your disease in me now. I have his disease in me. <laughs> no, I have your disease in me. No, because then she looks at Sandy and goes, his disease is in yeah, me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> He put this disease in me. Tell me it's all right. I open myself to you. Um, I think she's saying that like it's kind of just a symbolism of, of man. Okay. So man, like 
is the disease because they're angry and violent because she turned her she turned him into frank booth turned her into somebody who equates violence with sex right okay so that's his disease is Mm -hmm. is this violence so Mm -hmm. he's got that disease okay now that he's you know done the deed it's a great breakdown yeah uh (laughs) and also yeah it's gross and and as gross as laura dern's ugly cry Oh my gosh, I was. Whew. I mean, I, I I don't know. Maybe that was the note, but that was an ugly cry. <laughs> but I, I get it. She's completely embarrassed, and um, it's very awkward. She's finding out that the guy she told she loved just had sex with this girl, and he's like, "Then I no." Like he's almost like, "I don't know what she's talking about." Yeah. Like, almost like he could have he could explain that away. Like he could have just been like, "She's crazy." No, when she comes when she comes up to me, she's like, "Oh Jeffrey, oh Jeffrey," I was just like joking. I was like, "Oh Jeffrey." I'm going to blow up all your spots, Jeffrey. I'm going to blow them up so much. <laughs> when she comes, I also, I laugh when she, when Mike stops oh, them. <laughs> tries to, Sorry, man. Yeah. And then like his, so Mike comes up and he's like, Hey man, what the fuck are you doing my girl? And then, and then Dorothy Valens comes out and she's naked. Oh, it is in whatever. And he's like, and, and he's like, is that your mom? Is that your mom? <laughs> and then like she, he puts her in the car. Jeffrey puts her in the car. And he's like, Mike's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's fine. I get that reaction. Then his friend's like, I thought you were going to kick his yeah. ass. The fuck, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> that guy's like, come on, don't be a dick. <laughs> sorry. Did sorry, you just see what happened? <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that was interesting because Mike's reaction is legit. Oh, shit. I'm sorry, man. Yeah. Not Jesus. And the other guy's like, what the fuck, man? It's just a naked lady. Come on, man. It's supposed to take a kick his ass in front of his mom. <laughs> I love the shot when Dennis Hopper gets his uh, brains blown out. Oh, with the with the fake head. With the it's awesome. <laughs> I don't. I don't mind that. I don't mind. I don't mind when I see prosthetics because I'm just like, all right. Blew the blew the, he did. Blew the hell out of the back of that head. He's yeah. not getting back up. Or when he walks into the room and he sees the man in yellow, just dazed because he had the brain injury. Yeah, and he's just like, Ooh. and then he goes the walkie goes off. And he's like, he, oh, he his swings hand his up. hand. Yeah, that's yep. kind of creepy because that's like, what would you do? Like, pick, put yourself in Jeffrey. You open the door and you just you see this. Is he, you see this you see a dead guy with no ear and then you see this dude just standing there with half his brain of you can see his brain yeah, his like yeah. brain is swollen yeah that, 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 yeah that it's was a, that was good that's a that's a that's almost like that could be like the lobby card back in the day everybody they used to do lobby cards for movies you'd get a series of eight and you would post them and people it would be steal stills from the movie they don't do that as much anymore which is a shame but um that could have been a good lobby card. Probably disgusting. It probably had to be in black and white so they wouldn't have all the color, but right. that'd be good. That'd be a good lobby card. If maybe it was a lobby card, I should have looked it up. I love lobby cards. I have a couple. I'm sorry. They don't exist anymore. I know. I think, I mean, that's all I got in terms of Blue Velvet. I think people should watch it again. Always. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of other things that, you know, they don't, I don't think they tell you, but you have to assume. Like, I think Jack Nance's character is an undercover cop. I don't know if you got that impression. I wanted to ask you. I he well, there's a couple. That. Is that he's the one that would would get behind him and be like, "What's your name?" Like that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then yeah. He's like, he said, "Uh," or he said, "Age," <laughs> and he laughs. But he almost seems like he's yeah. He's almost he he looks at him with this kind of like sorry kid kind of expression, but then he'll say stuff that like makes him seem like he's part of the crew. So I get the feeling yeah. he was undercover. And at the end, when you look next door. And Sandy's father is in the yard. Mm-hmm. He's with Jack Nance. Yeah, I thought so. I th- I think that's a that's supposed to be. Yeah, you're right. No, 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 no. That's supposed to be Jeff's dad. That's Jeff's dad because he says, y- "Yeah, is it Jeff's dad? It is Jeff's dad." 
doing all right, Pop? He says, like, you doing okay? After, like, because everything's back to normal. Everyone's happy. Right. That, yeah, that's supposed to be. But, but to, still, your, to your point, to your point, the movie's the original cut of four hours. There's probably more stuff in there. Yeah. Like, I, I got the feeling that Jack Nance wasn't necessarily the bad just, guy. Just maybe one of the henchmen. Yeah. Do some more about him. Yeah. Well, the whole thing, the whole idea of Frank dressing as the well-dressed man. I, I didn't. There was something to that that we didn't know. I forgot about that. I thought that maybe the well-dressed man was um, Sandy's father. Well, there's some. I think but there's something we're missing that, because that it, it, because they take he takes a picture of him with his shoebox camera, which you know I guess you don't need to explain how Jeffrey put that together, but that's fine. Yeah, you know, and there's a reason why he's dressed differently or fake, maybe because he's meeting the cop. I don't know, but it's just right. that might be why because uh, he's meeting the man in yellow, who's the who's the dirty cop. So that might be a reason, but. There's probably something in the in the original four hour cut that we're missing in sure. this one. The original four hour cut probably does more stuff like the disappearing people, mm-hmm. the weird dolls. The more original four hour cuts probably very, very much more Mahalan Drive, mm-hmm. and that I know Dorantis is very big on having kind of control of the cut. He watches and goes, "I don't want this. I don't want this. I want this." He's very kind of controlling. It's funny you say that because <laughs> because in the you should I should have watched the whole doc, but in the doc they talk about. How uh, that's in the contract, like, no, that they were developing a contract. And Lynch was like, you know, Lynch always has final cut. And DeLorean says, I can't give that to you because I don't give it to anybody. Right. Because but if I I give it to you, I'd have to start doing it for everybody else. He's like, but I'm going to shake your hand. I'm going to tell you that you have final cut. And I and I that is I give you my word. And the guy was telling the story. He's like, if you know, Dino DeLorean he gives you his word he means it so he did have final cut but he couldn't put it down in the contract because then he'd have to do it for everybody so right. yeah so lynch had final cut i'm sure there was a lot of stuff that was more i'm gonna say david lynchy i'm gonna make that a term well i'm sure <laughs> the, the comment was listen i love the movie but we cannot put a four-hour th- movie no, in theaters no too, one's gonna yeah. watch it. but i'm sure a lot of the stuff they cut out was some of the more obscure stuff oh sure absolutely i'm sure some of that probably stuff went into twin peaks if this was a if this movie was kind of like the starting point for his Twin Peaks idea, I'm sure a lot of the stuff that you don't see is in there. I just want to point out this while I was watching it. Okay. And I, I could be wrong. You could disagree with me. Okay. Although my girlfriend agreed with me. So what? I can't disagree with both no, of you? No, you can, you, can, you can disagree. This movie is the same plot as uh, The Mask. The Jim Carrey, The Mask. Okay. Explain. Okay. So this young man sees a beautiful woman. Gets tangled up in her awkward relationship, almost kidnapper type relationship with a owner of this club where she sings at and tries to win her back while also having to deal with his awkward weirdness and putting on the mask when the bad guy puts on the mask almost makes him kind of like um, Frank in a way. The plot's very similar in a way that he gets mixed up with this very seedy underbelly and he's this very kind of like naive, fresh kind of guy. It's, It's the same plot. I don't remember Jeffrey Beaumont singing and dancing in front of cops. Uh, that was fun. that was in the four hour cut. <laughs> mm, like, OK, so like out of what percent are you saying it's very similar? Like 95, 85 plot wise, like what you're trying to say stuff. Or? I would say it's 65, 70 okay. percent. I would say when they were writing the mask, which is very different from what <laughs> was Blue Velvet on. Maybe they were trying to think of like a crime story and maybe Blue Velvet was like inspiration i mean you'd probably have to you'd probably have to do some research like a deep dive into the mask (laughs) (laughs) which we'll not do for here but um (laughs) i I, I, okay i guess i I, i'm gonna probably say no but that's fine 
Okay. I, you I guys can have your little views. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's fine. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I just. I mean, she didn't agree at first. And then when I explained it, she was like, ah, yeah, no, that's kind of the plot. The whole, but, but the plot of the mask is that he has, he has to come to terms with, he doesn't think he's worthy, a worthy person, the Jim Carrey character, which I don't remember his name. So he thinks the mask gives him confidence to be Stanley something. Right. Whatever. He gives the, the mask gives him confidence to be this person. He, he wants he and so he has to decide to get rid of the mask and just be himself. Right. I'm not saying the theme. Jeffrey Beaumont. The oh, no, I'm, well, listen, you brought it up. <laughs> Jeffrey Beaumont is somebody who has taken a peek into the dark side of the world, experienced it, doesn't like it and wants to go back. But it's not about but he doesn't find comfort in that side of the you know what i mean like right yeah in the quote-unquote mask and he only really does it once when he has sex with dorothy valens and he and he slaps her so that's my that's my retort to that i feel like he almost does it a couple times he because he just giving in to her i think is that seduction of the dark side sure i will get her is the final step Okay, I'll give you this. I guarantee you, nobody has had a conversation where they've compared the mask to Blue Velvet ever, ever. You I can only guarantee get, you that. You can only get that here on Forgotten <laughs> Cinema. And on that note, <laughs> um, yeah. The only last thing I wanted to say is that um, Dennis Hopper. This was one of three movies that Dennis Hopper did right out after he did. He came out of rehab for drug and alcohol addiction. He did this movie, Blue Velvet. I, I don't know in what order. Hoosiers. Which I love, and if I don't know if you love basketball, you love that movie. And Rivers Edge, you ever see Rivers Edge with Keanu Reeves, where they and Crispin Glover? No, I know of it, but I have not seen yeah, it. That's a that's a that might be a movie for here because if you have that might be a good movie to, to do for us. But uh, <laughs> Dennis Hopper is in that as well. So he did these all these three movies right out of the bat because his career was basically going nowhere, right? Uh, and you know he went to rehab, came out, did these movies, and then the rest is history. But he also did they all did this movie Hopper Dern. Russellini, this is like her second film because she was a Lanico model. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, McLaughlin, they all did this movie a little bit more for scale. Nobody got paid a lot of money for this movie. Okay. And because they wanted to do it because they were into the, into the script and stuff like that. So what I talked about it was a $6 million budget. It was initially supposed to be a $10 million movie. Couldn't get that. Ended up being six. So yeah, I just want to throw that in there. All right. All right. Cool. Yeah. Now is the time, Hunks Brockets, when we dance for all those <laughs> 80s people out there. Um, I'm talking about the plugs. So we're going to do something different this time around. We, we, we plug our own stuff incessantly, and we still will. Yes. I'm sure Mike will get into go into his riff uh, of, of all the podcasts. But one thing we wanted, we wanted to plug some podcasts or we wanted to try to plug other people's stuff, not just podcasts, but anything. Right. So the first thing we wanted to plug for this episode, or one of the ones we wanted to highlight, is a friend of ours, Andrew Morgan, has a podcast called The Nomcast. And that's about, um, he does uh, Netflix original movies, N-O-M, Nomcast. Get it? Um, (laughs) We're not making fun. Uh, So he, and he basically, you know, he has guest star every every episode. We have been, uh, I have actually, I'm a three-timer. I have done... uh, the movie, the Buster of Ballads, Ballad, the bus, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Jeez, I, that was actually the first ever Nomcast, so I'm so, so proud. I did that with Andrew. Uh, I know Andrew from my days uh, shooting uh, really bad uh, shorts with the Up and Lift Productions. Uh, so we go back. Uh, we also did um, Triple Frontier, the Ben Affleck one. Me, me and Mike did the last one we did was Christ, I remember Rim of the World. Rim of the World. 
Yeah. If you want to listen to an hour and a half of us just ripping something, go ahead and listen to the Room of the World episode. Yeah, well, we wanted to give Andrew a little shout out because he is looking to get to a thousand downloads. So He's close. So if you and give it a shot, if you like what we're t- if you like us and you want to hear us together, I would suggest watching our episode for Room of the World. If you like me and don't like Butler, then I would suggest you go watch the other two. <laughs> so check it out. It is available where all podcasts are available. And also you can get it at fistfulofjokes.com backslash the nomcast. And there's a little dash between the and nomcast. But I would just say if you have Apple Podcasts, he's on there. So search him from there. Nomcast. N-O-M-C-A-S-T. That's for you, Andrew. Mike? All right. So... As always, if you like Forgotten Cinema, please share, subscribe, review us. Um, let everyone know about it. You know, the more viewers we have, the better. The more subscribers we have, the better. Yeah. So that's Forgotten Cinema. Oh, you're not gonna put? Po- you're not gonna do that. the other ones? Oh no, I'll still do the other ones. I just wanted to get the Forgotten Cinema. One we're also. What did you say we were on? I wasn't paying attention. I know I was standing up. What did you say we were on uh, Apple Podcasts? And- oh, I didn't say any of that, but we oh, are okay. available wherever podcasts can we be found. We are. Apple Podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, iHeartRadio. You, you can go. even tell Alexa to play you our can. podcast. You can. You <laughs> can. So if you're near your Alexa right now, give, I want to try something. Alexa, play Forgotten Cinema. Let me know if that worked. Nice. <laughs> this is why I renamed my Alexa. <laughs> So other than Forgotten Cinema, I've also got two other podcasts. I have Crack and Open with Mike and Elise, a podcast about brews, news, and pop culture reviews, where we crack open a different craft beer every episode, talk a little bit about it, the style of beer, the brewery, the art on the label, and we give our little notes about what we think about the uh, the beer in general. And then we talk about any kind of media that's out there, usually what's streaming, new TV shows, what's out in cinema. So if you want me to talk if you want to hear me talk about more modern um ongoing series or movies that are just released that's where i would talk about them i've also got two player bros a podcast by two brothers who play way too many video games where you can join myself and my brother alex as we talk about video game news reviews and previews uh for all systems pc switch xbox playstation 4 or any upcoming systems that might come out so those are my two podcasts they can also be found wherever podcasts can be found and listened to and join us next week. We're going to talk about a movie that I absolutely love and Butler has never seen. And I think it's one of the funniest movies I've ever seen in the last five years. Five years? Ten years. I'm going to say ten years. I don't remember how long ago. I'm talking about MacGruber. I swear to God, I did not think I would love this movie, but it is awesome. And if Mike doesn't like it, I'm going to beat the crap out of him. I can't wait to hate it. <laughs> he has talked this movie up so much, folks. I once that it can never live up to his hype. I don't know if you remember this, but I once when we did remember when we used to play challenge at the theater. Yes. So we played this really stupid idiotic game <laughs> called challenge. And I was challenged to write on my blog uh, why I love MacGruber. So if you can go to michaeldfield.com and you can search through the blog, it's a while ago. I have there's a whole blog where I just talk about why MacGruber is awesome. I actually should. You know what? I should like we should repost that. that. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I should, or I should put a link to it in when we do the episode. What you should also know, folks, is in the office at work, uh, Michael Fields here will randomly say McGruber quotes yep. for no one but himself because no one else has seen this film yep. in the office. KFBR three nine two. KFBR saying stuff. It is awesome. So if you want to listen to just me talk about how fantastic it is, next week, McGruber. Can't wait. You better what? You better you better <laughs> like this damn movie. I swear to God. <laughs> uh.
All right. Well, so, well, go ahead. Nope, after you. Uh, so thanks, guys. I'm Mike Field. I'm Mike Butler. And this has been Forgotten Cinema. I remember <laughs> this dude likes to snort amyl nitrate.